Chapter Fourteen of *The Women Who Make Our Novels* by Grant Overton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Carroll. *The Women Who Make Our Novels* by Grant Overton. Chapter Fourteen. Twenty-seven, twenty-two, Kleinview Avenue east walnut hills cincinnati ohio june nineteenth nineteen eighteen my dear mr overton i have here a letter from mr latham of macmillan's with a very complimentary request from you for data regarding myself there really is not much to say about me as a person the trade of writing has been pursued in times past at least by so many picturesque people in so picturesque a fashion that the rest of the world has got into the habit of thinking an author must of necessity be picturesque but such is not my case rather to my regret whenever anybody displays this kind and gratifying curiosity about me one would dearly love to be a slapdash swashbuckling sort of person like borrow say or a sick fiery indomitable r l s then there would be something to write about as it is i am only an inconspicuous gentlewoman i hope a gentlewoman anyway with a more or less victorian style of writing which has frequently proved a profound puzzle to critics of a younger generation the dates are to be got out of who's who but to spare trouble i will give them here born eighteen sixty eight brought up on an old farm in central ohio went to school at the convent of the sacred heart in cincinnati for some two or three years married eighteen ninety one lived in cincinnati ever since of all these events the being brought up on that old farm is probably the greatest asset for the literary career the other things happen to everybody but the farm experience was sui generis, not exactly like anything else, least of all like the farm life you read about and involuntarily pictured. My people moved to this country home about the middle of the last century, when it was only a few years removed from the wilderness. I think the farm was the remnant of a comfortable patrimony, which in the well-tried old phrase had been run through. I think it was a last resort, refuge, stronghold. But these were things which were not talked about in the family. I can see now that the life I was made to live as a child was very strange. Here we all were, educated people with traditions and sophisticated ideas, set down amongst actual backwoodsmen whom the older members of the family looked upon without the least idea of being snobbish, as peasants. They really were a wild, uncouth lot. There were grown men and women who could not read and write. Of course, that is all over now. Education, the railroads, the ladies' home journal have changed everything. Don't think I am not serious in mentioning that final item. I sincerely believe that the so-called women's magazines have done more for these backward and isolated communities 
than all the other preachers and teachers put together but the point of telling all this intimate history is to make you understand the loneliness of my upbringing as a child my sister and i had no companions of our own age we were not allowed to associate with the country children we must have been queer little fish we had to make up our own games and we played stories out of books taking all the characters in turn the ohio countryside is not romantic as to landscape nevertheless it has a kind of comfortable charm i have described it pretty accurately in nathan burke in my day there were still passenger pigeons by the uncounted thousands and of course quail gray squirrels and other kinds of game in like abundance there was an old man at least i thought him old then named ben rhodes who used to make his living shooting and trapping and who was in fact the last of the pioneers he wore a coonskin cap with the bushy tail hanging down his back and butternut dyed clothes he could shoot a squirrel through the eye with a rifle a rifle mind you at the utmost distance the weapon would carry yeah waste a power of powder and shot with them thar shotguns he would say yeah taken twenty shot when one order do i remember him sitting on our back porch chewing tobacco and skinning squirrels the last an operation of hideous dexterity you rip the animal down the front and then after certain swift and mysterious performances with ben's hunting knife which was always horribly bright and keen fit to scout people with you take hold of the ears you set your foot on the tail and with one infallible quick jerk you somehow or other turn it inside out and there in a trice is the furry pelt intact and there the dreadful skinless corpse of the squirrel with all its muscles showing red and slick and shining i never see a squirrel without thinking of ben who was a footloose creature and wandered off at last and died somewhere much like the wild things he hunted if i have been particular to describe him here it is because thirty years afterwards i wrote about him and called him jake darnell and in all the writings i have done for which i have time and again been accused of having taken living models he is absolutely the only actual portrait i could not have imagined ben one must be born and brought up in the backwoods of ohio to know what manner of man he was this answers out of its order to be sure one of your questions that is to what extent are my novels autobiographical or reminiscent of real persons except as regards ben they are not at all reminiscent of any one real person and nothing i have ever written has reflected my own life consciously at least an author i think in picturing his own world as seen through his own eyes may easily tell more about himself than he knows this also i perceive answers another question what is my method of accumulating material i find i have none 
the material seems to present itself or to be gathered up and packed away without conscious effort in some storehouse of memory i can almost always go to this garret turn over the junk and haul out what i want it generally needs some making over piecing and patching to be sure but there is always something there that will serve i have never had to make a memorandum as i understand many authors do of likely phrases telling words and so on never sketched out a scene or plot never got up in the middle of the night or hopped off an omnibus to rush after a scrap of paper and pencil in order to jot down some immortal thought the only thing i do sometimes jot down is the chronology of the narrative john mcginnis and mary dill are married at such and such a date then will their son dill mcginnis be fifteen at such and such a date I never know, and have to count up on my fingers and generally revise the schedule afterwards. And I have been caught up pretty sharply by the unprofessional critics who volunteer criticism in letters to authors for being as much as twenty years out in my figures, or for making contradictory statements. The sole excuse I have to offer is that I can't count and never got any farther than six times eight, which I believe makes forty-eight in the multiplication table. Invincible ignorance, in other words, must be my salvation. As to my first writings, I shared one quality with R.L.S. at any rate. I knew they were trash. They were mostly short stories which went and came between me and the magazine editors with a pendulum-like regularity. I used to work furiously over these things and always sent them off with the highest hopes, and yet received them back with no deep disappointment. At the bottom of my heart, I say, I knew they were trash. What I did not know was that, in very truth, I should never write anything but trash, no matter how widely it got printed and published. I was forever expecting some day to do it, and sit down satisfied. I am still expecting that miracle, and all the while I know it will not happen. Some of those far-traveled short stories have since been rewritten and published, and some incorporated in novels, and some are still in the back of my mind waiting their hour of usefulness. When I began, the influence of Stevenson was still very strong and Mr. Wayman and Mr. Hope Hawkins, to say nothing of Ryder Haggard and the incomparable Sherlock Holmes, were in the middle of their popularity. Where are the roses of yesteryear? We will always read Stevenson, but we realize now that he was a writer, just that, and he was a great personality, just that. Everybody, including myself, used strenuously to imitate him, and I think it didn't do us any harm. He preached better than he practiced, and after some toiling after him, we found that out, but our toil was not thrown away. I will say, in self-glorification, that after I got through imitating Stevenson, I did not start in and imitate O. Henry or Mr. Rudyard Kipling.
and few are the writers who can honestly make that boast about that time it became manifest to me that the thing to do was not to muddle around with romance ancient or modern but to write about people and to lie like the truth i remember reading thackeray and being struck with the profitable use of the conversational style in lying like the truth i don't mean chatty and i don't mean colloquial and i don't mean that easy slinging about of words which the new writers affect i mean conversational as conversation is carried on between persons in what i shall call for want of a better term good society but what puzzled me about thackeray was that there were occasional passages of considerable extent wherein he was not conversational at all he was writing like somebody else but it still had the most amazing verisimilitude it was so plausible that you believed it just as you believe the morning paper it was in barry linden that this first struck me i believe who showed him that trick he is forever talking about fielding but upon rereading the latter i saw it was not fielding he was imitating thackeray in breezy parlance can give fielding cards and spades after a while in a moment of illumination i found him out the wily old genius was not bothering his head about fielding the man he was modeling upon was daniel defoe that's where he got that simplicity which did not hesitate at times to be prosy well aware that a plain true narrative has always the defect of its quality monotony repetition a tedious dwelling on detail there is nothing in fiction better imagined or imagined with more veracity than the pitiful importance which his efforts at braiding baskets and making pottery vessels assume to the castaway robinson in his solitude and yet it is not vividly interesting reading there is nothing also better imagined than george warrington's escape from fort duquesne with the help of the indian squaw but it is rather tiresome on the whole and the final touch where the poor squaw instead of turning out a lovely romantic pocahontas becomes a perfect nuisance when they reach the settlements getting drunk and creating scandal that is a masterpiece of realism and we all hate to know about it rereading defoe and reading thackeray more carefully with side excursions as it were into reading swift and mr thomas hardy it seemed to me that i might eventually learn the trick i take it that i have actually succeeded once or twice by the fact that nobody will believe that i have ever invented a single person or incident people are eternally wanting to know who was the original of this or that character or what is worse identifying characters with somebody's whom ten to one i have never laid eyes on others have insisted that they knew very well i was cutting the tail out of whole cloth but that i had no vision was too photographic etc it may well be so my cup is very small and i must drink out of it willy-nilly the critics as i have said were rather put to it for something to say when i appeared 
most of them adopted a cautious middle-of-the-road policy you see i might turn out to be a writer after all with my bewildering deliberation my careless fluency i have seen this phrase used in description of my writing my emphasis of the commonplace of late years i think they have got used to me for that matter when all's said and done my contributions to literature are not of such importance as to arrest a critic long i see one of the questions relates to travels mine have been about as those of the average citizen except that one or two were undertaken in search of material for example i went to mexico when writing nathan burke as the hero is supposed to take part in the mexican war and while at work on van cleve a story in which the spanish-american war makes a kind of fugitive entrance and exit i went to cuba and down to santiago i might possibly have faked up these stories without the trouble of the journey it would be as easy to do that as to imagine society and the world fifty or a hundred years ago which i have also done that is to say not easy at all nothing is easy but i could have done it however i prefer to make some attempt at getting the atmosphere the dates of publication are about as follows the tenants mcclure nineteen o eight nathan burke macmillan nineteen ten the legacy nineteen eleven van cleve his friends and his family published serially in the atlantic monthly nineteen twelve in book form by macmillan nineteen thirteen the rise of jenny cushing nineteen fifteen the rudder nineteen sixteen the boardman family nineteen eighteen also a book called three short plays nineteen seventeen i cannot let this go without adding a word of protest whether in your judgment it is fit to make public or not about the people who in printed criticism or in private letters and conversations insist on attributing to me the words i put into the mouths of my characters and the thoughts i put into their heads i make a man designedly weak and futile or idle or dull or small-minded i make him say or do something which precisely exhibits his weakness or futility or idleness or dullness or meanness how else shall the reader know this man than by his own mouth by his own deeds is it not so that we know one another a character in a book must act and speak in his part he ought never to become even for one instant the mouthpiece of the author he is in a sense as much a stranger to the author as much a different and distinct personality as he is to the reader then why when i make a man say there is no god and moreover go to work and express this opinion in a dozen ways by every act and thought of his career why do people accuse me of being an atheist at that rate if i invented a burglar i'd first have to be a burglar myself nobody ever gives me credit for the kind intelligent temperate decent people i create it's only the disagreeable ones apparently that i am accountable for what have i got to do with it i merely imagine a character such as we meet with every day of our lives put him into a certain environment 
or submit him to certain circumstances and then see what happens by their fruits ye shall know them and out of the fullness of the heart the mouth speaketh give me the best of authorities for this method whole pages of description cannot illuminate the reader as much as one unguarded sentence from the lips of a character but why accuse me of his sentiments i'm only turning a searchlight on him the thing is exasperating not less so because it is a sort of left-handed tribute to the verisimilitude i am always striving after in the preface to one of his books the late mr william de morgan speaks his mind earnestly about the same kind of injustice and i am further reminded of a story about thackeray who on being reproached for making so-and-so and such a one act that way retorted why good lord i didn't do it they did it themselves so if i err at least i err in good company this letter is already too long with very many thanks and best wishes for the forthcoming book i am sincerely yours mary s watts mrs watts's candor should be attended by an equal candor on the part of the compiler of this book of course despite the reporter's role to which he endeavors pretty scrupulously to stick throughout these pages he has his personal preferences his readers have a right to know something about them if only that they may discount his statements at their own intellectual rates of exchange what we have to say about mrs watts may properly be prefaced then with the admission that on the whole we a strictly editorial we have received more permanent pleasure and satisfaction from her novels than from those of any other american woman let us try to make clear the grounds for this satisfaction and let us also try to place before the reader the solid merits of her work thackeray and defoe as she makes clear have been most important of all writers to her and she admired in thackeray the conversational style with which he told his story in defoe she found the key to that non-conversational simple rather prosy repetitive completely realistic method of relation which is the best treatment in certain passages and which affords the reader and the writer necessary relief but neither thackeray nor defoe nor swift hardy or any other had been able to help mrs watts had she not possessed certain gifts evidenced in every one of her stories she can see a character through and through by that we mean she can not only conceive a person but she can tell what he would do in any set of circumstances soever just how wonderful this is you have only to stop a moment and reflect to understand take any person whom you know particularly well do you know what he would do if he suddenly lost all his money or his job if he suddenly became rich if his wife left him if his father were murdered if this if that you hesitate and well you may and yet you think you know him rather well the truth is you know only certain aspects of him you have never read his mind or heart and established the existence or absence of certain traits of character 
which will infallibly determine his action in any event that may befall. You've never done that, why should you? But you must do just that if you are going to write a novel, and not with one person, but with half a dozen. Moreover, your person, when it comes to writing, isn't somebody you can study in flesh and blood, at least not in Mrs. Watts's case, for Jake Dornell is her only actual portrait. Mrs. Watts has in a high degree what has been called the fine malice of feminine perception, a quality which makes pride and prejudice immortal, whether we like it or not. This is not malice in the sense of hating or grudging or even disliking the people about you. It is merely a faculty for noticing insignificant details which, when assembled, constitute a merciless betrayal. The betrayal is merciless, whether it is favorable to the subject or not. Where Joseph Conrad, for example, makes you envisage a man as a single dominant trait, Mrs. Watts makes you see him as a bundle of contradictions. The difference in method is extreme, but both methods are indispensable. Conrad supplies the key to an otherwise unreadable soul. Mrs. Watts takes the soul that you read too readily as that of a person upon a single thing intent and breaks it up for you, splits it into a dozen shades of meaning and purpose as the prism refracts white light into a whole spectrum of colors. She has further the largeness of mind and tolerant humor to study all and understand all and set everything down with unfailing gusto. Nothing is too mean or too shabby, too pretentious or too lofty for her eyes and her pen. She delineates insufferable young men like George Ducey in Nathan Burke and Everett Boardman in The Boardman Family, whom Jean Stratton Porter would not touch with a pitchfork and whom Edith Wharton could never render adequately. But, Lord, these young men must be of some use in the world, we can fancy Mrs. Watts saying with a smile, else it's not likely they'd be here. The fact that they are here and have to be reckoned with is enough. Let us see what is to be made of them. And she proceeds to show us what is made of them. Not a pretty spectacle, to be sure. Not pointing a clear moral, maybe but worth our while if only to remind us of what we don't know. We suspect that Mrs. Watts would subscribe without reservation to Conrad's notion that trying to find the moral of our existences is in the main futile. Do you recall his words in A Personal Record? Quote, the ethical view of the universe involves us at last in so many cruel and absurd contradictions where the last vestiges of faith, hope, charity, and even of reason itself seem ready to perish that I have come to suspect that the aim of creation cannot be ethical at all. I would fondly believe that its object is purely spectacular, a spectacle for awe, love, adoration or hate if you like but in this view and in this view alone never for despair those visions delicious or poignant 
are a moral end in themselves the rest is our affair the laughter the tears the tenderness the indignation the high tranquillity of a steeled heart the detached curiosity of a subtle mind that's our affair End quote. it is old master mrs watts has always made it very much her affair from nathan burke to the present hour in her is laughter as when in the rudder marshall cook the author inspects the plant of amzi loring the ice king mr loring is a self-made man cook watches the machinery spill blocks of ice weighing three hundred pounds each quote, beautifully clear i was just thinking it was like a great glass box said cook it had no look of being solid um huh well i have seen things put inside it said the other sly anticipation suddenly appearing on his features he nodded significantly to the puller and presently with another clang another wail of escaping air there boomed down upon the runway and fled past them another three hundred pounds with a dark object embedded in the middle of it at sight of which cook gave an exclamation what he shouted rushing to peer after it i told him to save out that cake and send it up to the house for you said omsey one smiling well pleased you'll see it again when you get home a copy of mr cook's latest book had been frozen in the ice cake mr loring said cook solemnly he paused swallowing with a mighty effort even some slight contortion of the facial muscles mr loring my work has seldom had a a token of appreciation that i i value more ahem 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 End quote. tears yes there are tears for those who can shed them in nathan burke where indeed the chapters describing jim sharpless's critical illness in the shabby little boarding-house kept by the exasperating but pitiful mrs slaney read more like dickens than thackeray tenderness there is first and last a good deal of it expended oftentimes upon individuals with whom mrs watts teaches us a wise patience there is a deserved tenderness in the close of the first part of the boardman family relieved instantly by one of those swift transitions which occur in life sandra boardman has decided to go to new york she intends to become a professional dancer Quote, she went to bed early that night and after a while mrs alexander boardman going quietly upstairs stopped at her granddaughter's door and looked in there was some disorder sandra's trunk had already gone but her little valise stood open on a chair waiting for the last odds and ends there were her gloves and hat and her natalie rolled umbrella laid together mrs alexander went in a step by the light from the hall she could see sandra sound asleep with her long thick black hair braided and tied up in a ribbon lying across the pillow she looked very small and young 
on the nightstand beside the bed there was the watch her father had given her on her nineteenth birthday a girl's watch that never kept time a foolish elegant trifle and there was a half-eaten apple which she had probably been too sleepy to finish somehow these things this inefficient watch this apple with a bite or two out of it suddenly seemed to the old lady poignantly pathetic a hundred times she had seen sandra thus in her crib with a toy a cookie alongside richard too when he was a baby old sarah chase boardman whose past like everybody's past must have held some unpleasing chapters who went to church and subscribed to charities and practiced an unswerving courtesy all for no better reason than because it appeared to her the part of a lady who believed nothing about god save that if he existed he must surely be a gentleman old sarah boardman got down on her knees then and there and put up some lame petition for this young girl mrs richard passing by saw her in the attitude with surprise and alarm good gracious mother what is the matter she wanted to know in a guarded voice nothing said mrs alexander rising stiffly i dropped my little gold pen never mind lucy i found it thank you End quote. a beautifully illustrative passage it shows the defoe method the enumerative narration at its best so many writers would have failed to infect us with the feeling that mrs watts conveys it is not until you have stepped inside sandra's room and seen bit by bit what old sarah boardman saw that you can share her feeling and understand how a very fine but also very worldly old lady came to kneel and put up some lame petition for this girl the conclusion emphasizes what we said at the start of this discussion would you well as you might have known sarah boardman have known just how she would behave when her daughter-in-law caught her upon her knees in sandra's bedroom mrs watts knew knew perfectly the rather pathetic deception the old lady's pride reserve worldliness whatever you choose to call it would inspire knew also the presence of mind which would enable her to effect it in order of popularity mrs watts's books stand thus nathan burke then the legacy her next book after nathan burke then the rise of jenny cushing the comparison is somewhat vitiated by the fact that van cleve coming between the legacy and jenny cushing was published serially in the atlantic monthly and must have reached a great many of mrs watts's readers that way before it appeared in covers the rudder was less successful than any of the others though it is too early to judge of the popularity of the boardman family published in the spring of nineteen eighteen for some reason which the present writer is unable to fathom the rudder was criticized with a most unusual severity of opinion by those who review books and commonly mistake their opinions for infallible fact i have been unable to perceive its inferiority to the bulk of mrs watts's work 
it is a less dramatic story so far as external incident goes than most of the novels but in its portraiture its fidelity to personal characteristics its humor its sharpness of observation and skillful selection for recording the rudder leaves nothing to be desired i should rate it with the legacy while freely conceding that the developed story of the girl and woman letty breen chief figure in the legacy more readily holds the average reader's attention and interest the close of the legacy where letty breen asked herself am i a good woman a bad woman and then answers i do not know clearly foreshadowed the rise of jenny cushing which since its presentation in motion pictures with elsie ferguson in the title role will be in its main outlines familiar to more people than any other story of mrs watts's not even excepting nathan burke it is a pity that the film representation twists the conclusion of the tale so as to affix the conventional happy ending not the inevitable happy ending none can object to a happy ending where it is inevitable nor desire another it is where an unhappy or neutral ending is inevitable that we resent anything else being foisted upon us and the true ending the book ending of the rise of jenny cushing is neutral it could not be otherwise there is in jenny cushing built up by her solid will and fortified by her experience a force sufficiently great to neutralize her love for don and save her from herself the rise of jenny cushing is the most dramatic the most artistic and will be the most enduring of mrs watts's books it is without any question a really great novel and both in its conception and its execution it would reflect luster upon any name in american literature and upon the literature of any land on earth the popularity of nathan burke with its richness of detail its warmth of feeling its lively narration and its distinctly good and distinctly bad characters is natural and to be expected any one who likes dickens will revel in nathan burke the popularity of the legacy is partly attributable to the fact that it followed nathan burke but the popularity of jenny cushing represents the fresh and admiring discovery of mrs watts by an audience in large part different from that she had acquired with her earlier books it was a popularity wholly earned by jenny cushing and not a carryover from a preceding book as in the case of the legacy that it was earned by the merit of the book itself is clear enough from this fact in the case of nathan burke and the legacy the reprintings fell within three or four months the books sold off quickly but jenny cushing was published in october reprinted in november and the next reprinting was the following june this was not a book of ephemeral success and made its way slowly by sheer power power shows in every line of the story power of a silent but incomparably wonderful sort is embodied in jenny cushing the girl whose infancy was spent in a brothel 
who learned completely and finally when to keep her lips shut, who was sent to a reformatory, who went to work as a domestic on a farm, who gave herself to be the model and mistress of an artist, who gave nothing that was not hers to give, whose only mistake was in keeping silent once too often. Or was that a mistake? At any rate, Jenny Cushing was stronger than any one about her, more human, broader, capable of greater comprehensions, readier to make necessary decisions, and to act upon them, able to pay the hardest price the world could exact from her. Cool, courageous Jenny. And yet she was feminine. Who can forget the little girl that was stricken with the loveliness of the bronze statuette of two girls blithely dancing? But her clear insight! She knew that it would be wrong for Don to marry her, and in the very torture of her love for him, had courage to tell him so and insist upon it. Her love she could not deny, or would not, one hesitates to say that Jenny could not deny herself anything. The Boardman family suffers one serious defect. After writing with all her usual skill and putting completely before us the girl Sandra Boardman, her contemptible brother, Max Levison, the theatrical manager, and various other absolutely lifelike and interesting persons, after getting our interest to a high pitch in the dilemma that confronts Sandra respecting Levison as a lover, Mrs. Watts quite incomprehensibly has these three take passage on the Lusitania. They could as easily have sailed on any other boat, and in the destruction of the steamship Levison and Everett are drowned. The reader has himself the sense of being submarined, his interest, torpedoed without warning, sinks without a trace. If such a thing took place in a novel by a less able writer, we should know what to think of it. We should know that the author had created a situation which was beyond him, and from which he could not extricate his people without a few fatalities. But no situation is beyond Mrs. Watts. She has proved that time and again, it is a mystery to be cleared up later. Van Cleve is an excellent and characteristic piece of work which, next to Nathan Burke, may perhaps best be depended upon to engage the interest of anyone whose natural or acquired tastes fit him to enjoy Mrs. Watts's fine novels of the manners of our time. Of her three short plays, since they are not really within the scope of this book, we will say merely that An Ancient Dance is the most ingenious and dramatically effective. Civilization is splendid satire, but inconclusive in its termination. The Wearin' o' the Green is a farce that lacks the necessary madness and fantasticality. But all three plays are most agreeable reading. Books by Mary S. Watts The Tenants, 1908 Nathan Burke, 1910 The Legacy, 1911 Van Cleve, His Friends and His Family, 1913 The Rise of Jenny Cushing, 1914 The Rudder, 1916 Three Short Plays, 
1917. The Boardman Family, 1918. Mrs. Watts's books are published by the Macmillan Company, New York. End of chapter 14. Recording by Lynn Carroll.